0: Hello, I'm Nina Law.
1: And I'm Max Lidiot. We're psychiatry residents of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and this is the History of Madness podcast.
0: In this podcast, we will be telling fascinating stories from the history of psychiatry.
1: In this episode, I'll be talking about the history of psychiatric diagnosis. Usually in these episodes, I try and form it into kind of a narrative, but this is such a big topic, and it's... turns out, after I've done a lot of reading, that it turned out to be a fairly complicated topic as well. So this is the kind of thing that I feel like could easily devolve into a list of names and dates and different theories and very, very slightly different talking points as time goes on. But I want to kind of steer away from that. And I want to just talk about the ideas that went into the changing idea of psychiatric diagnosis. And when we look at that, it turns out that there's kind of two competing ideas or or tensions in the history of psychiatric diagnosis. Number one is the actual diagnosis itself. What makes up this particular mental illness? How do we define it? And what do we do with that information? And then the other kind of tension is the idea of like, what is a mental illness period? The very philosophical idea of what makes up a mental illness, what goes into the lived experience of having a mental illness, um, and then what does that mean like in our society? So there's kind of these two, two tensions and these kind of two dueling narratives that I'm gonna try and weave in together. Um, now, having just said that, I'm gonna avoid talking about names and dates. I have, I have one, one important name and date. So I think the story really starts with Hippocrates, um, which was an ancient Greek physician uh, and kind of considered the founder of modern medicine, but also really kind of the founder of psychiatry as well. And central to kind of Hippocrates' idea of medicine was this kind of almost thought experiment that all diseases were basically imbalances of the four humors, so it was blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And basically depending on different like levels that you had of each of these humors or fluids, would determine what disease was actually expressed. So then kind of the logical corollary was, okay, if you've got an imbalance of this one particular humor, you would take an action to remedy that, to bring it down or bring it up, depending on what the disease was. And this was kind of expounded on uh, by a number of ancient philosophers and physicians. So uh, the idea became that the goal would be to have these four humors in ideal balance or eucrasia and the opposite of this would be dyscrasia. So you had a dyscrasia of one of your hormones. So Hippocrates had different examples of what each of these humors would do in the body, um, but it wasn't really until a physician named Galen, who was personal physician of the emperor Marcus Aurelius, it wasn't until him that this was expounded to mental diseases as well. So he kind of expounded upon this humoral theory of medicine to include like temperaments that were resulting from overabundance or underabundance of the different humors. So for example, like blood, which is sanguine, was someone who is enthusiastic, social. Um, Someone who had very high phlegm was considered phlegmatic. They were reserved and calm. Uh, Yellow bile was something called choleric. They were ambitious, aggressive, short-tempered. And these have made their way into kind of modern conception. These are like probably words that you're familiar for describing kind of Types of people. A choleric person is a very, like, kind of disagreeable person. And then finally, the last of the four humors. So we talked about blood, phlegm, and yellow bile. The last is black bile. The term for someone who has an overabundance of black bile is something you're very familiar with today. Someone who's melancholic. Um, so if you look at the root words like mel, things like melanin are black. And then cholea, like cholecystectomy or cholecystitis, they're related to bile. So black bile is melancholia, and that idea has carried forward. And what that meant to Galen was someone who was melancholic was someone who was particularly depressive, which makes a lot of sense now. It's also associated incidentally with cancer, um, an overabundance of black bile. So there was kind of a, a link between depression and cancer even very, very early on. But what this meant was that you had this idea that all the humors needed to be in balance, that if you were someone who was melancholic, Uh, You had an overabundance of black bile, so you'd need to take an action, usually by um, having a tea made with some herbs or doing something that would decrease other uh, humors or increase other humors. Something like bleeding would decrease blood, um, and other treatments would address the melancholy specifically. But this was kind of the idea throughout most of the ancient Western world, that there was a a smooth line between physical diseases and mental diseases. This idea of the four humors explained everything. It explained um, depression, it explained, explained irritability, but it also explained things like cancer. So there wasn't really this conception of a separation between the mental and the physical, and the explanation for psychiatric diseases was intricately tied to the pathophysiologic mechanism that they they thought of. So this was the the way that mental illnesses were defined for thousands of years and it wasn't really until the 19th century that there was anything to kind of disagree with this model throughout this time when this was the predominant theory mental illness was obviously as prevalent as it is today um, you had people who were blocked in asylums where they were warehoused away from society and while this understanding that this was okay perhaps an overabundance of one of these types of humors maybe you could treat it with like a humoral remedy they really didn't have any efficacy so really the idea was okay you can maybe you can figure out what's wrong with this person by attributing it to their balance of humors but you couldn't do anything for them so that kind of led to essentially a pessimistic idea that, well, diagnosis doesn't really matter. This this person is quote-unquote insane, or they're possessed by the devil, or have some other kind of spiritual ailment or criminal ailment, that it doesn't really matter what is the underlying pathology, you would treat them the same. So diagnosis kind of languished. This idea that the humors were uh, instrumental in mental illnesses kind of fell out of favor, and really the whole project of diagnosis was abandoned entirely. That is, until around the turn of the 20th century. Then, uh, kind of two competing theories emerged, and really just for context, at this time medicine was undergoing a transformation as well. It would not have been uncommon in the early 1900s to go to a physician and have them prescribe bleeding as a remedy. There wasn't an idea of like the scientific conception of medicine that we understand today. It was still based on kind of this humoral idea. Now this was coming into play for sure. There were research bases that were like finding different causes to different diseases and treatments that were like studied empirically that were shown to have worked. randomized control trials existed with like things like scurvy, vitamin C to treat scurvy. This 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 was all going on at the same time. It was coexisting. So med- so medicine, general, like physio- physical medicine in general, was undergoing this transition from this dimensional idea of the humors to a more evidence-based system of diagnosis. What happened in the rest of medicine kind of parallels what it would eventually happen with psychiatry. So I think it's kind of worthwhile to dive in. So by way of example, there's a condition that you almost certainly would have treated at some point in your medical career, uh, but have probably never heard of. It's called dropsy, have you ever ever heard of that? No. Okay, Um, you've definitely seen it. So dropsy is essentially edema, which we'd recognize easily now, it's like edema is like swelling, Um, it's fluid where fluid shouldn't be. It turns out though, that um, when physicians would initially diagnose dropsy, they would prescribe one of a handful of treatments, and some of them were effective, but they didn't realize until much later that dropsy didn't really exist as its own kind of unit. It was a description of symptoms, phenomenological presentation. It wasn't really a description of the underlying pathophysiology. So edema, we now know, could easily be related to um, heart failure. So fluid overload from heart failure, it could be related to not having enough, like, oncotic pressure in your blood vessels because your liver's not making enough protein because you have cirrhosis. It could also be lymphedema, which is the breakdown of the actual physical lymph vessels. So there's a lot of causes, and each of those three you would treat completely differently. And if you went and did a big study of everyone with dropsy and gave them a particular treatment, even if it was, say, an extremely effective treatment for one of the three, you might not see any effect until you were able to understand that the diagnosis needed to be more specific before you could find an effective therapy. So this, this was kind of the, where mental health was. The, the treatment that we had for mental health conditions at the turn of the century was to warehouse them, to put them in an asylum. There were ideas that you could use things like water baths to change blood flow. You could use fever cures to treat neurosyphilis. Um, this was kind of coming online, but this was like g- very gradually and slowly developing. With this, there there was kind of two approaches. Then they both occurred around the same time. So one was the Freudian conception. So Freud proposed that mental illness was the result of unconscious conflict and that in order to treat them, you had to address the unconscious conflict. Now... Um, this is a very like appealing idea, and it continues in our conception of psychiatry today with a little nuance, like the idea that there are things that you aren't aware of that affect your behavior, and if you become aware of those things, then your behavior will change or your, the expression of your mental illness will change. So um, to Freud, again, the idea of diagnosis wasn't as important. It was a very individual treatment. You meet the person, you find out exactly what their unconscious conflicts are, you help them resolve it, and then theoretically their mental illness will get better. That being said, he did have kind of a conceptualization of different kinds of processes that could be going on. So he conceptualized someone as either psychotic or neurotic. Um, psychotic being like disorder in their perception of reality. and um, how they interacted with the world and neurotic is more similar to what we today conceptualize as anxiety or depression. And then of course in between there was the borderline between psychosis and neurosis which is carried through the modern day like in borderline personality disorder. It's kind of the wavering between the two. Now Freud was very prominent and obviously continues to influence diagnosis today but there was an alternative model. Whereas Freud Considered uh, mental illness to be a very individual process. Um, he didn't necessarily see much value in broadening any particular like syndrome into many other cases. Diagnosis wasn't as fundamental to psychoanalysis as it was to say the rest of physical medicine. Other thinkers, um, notably Emil Kraepelin, or almost exactly around the same time, thought that. No, this doesn't make sense. It, it matters to put people into groups of diagnosis based on the trajectory of their illness, based on the symptoms that you observe, and by doing so, then you can fit them into the rest of the medical model and prescribe treatments. A perfect example. So let's say someone who, today we would diagnose as schizophrenia. Um, they have impaired reality testing, they have uh, hallucinations, they have delusions, they have other cognitive side effects. Freud would conceptualize this person as being on the psychotic end of the spectrum. Uh, And at the time, the only available treatment would be talk therapy. They would do psychoanalysis to try and find out what was at the root of uh, these thought processes. What was the unconscious conflict that needed to be resolved by this person essentially becoming psychotic? Um, And that may be a effective for some people typically not with someone with schizophrenia but maybe for some other psychotic processes that might be that might be effective but kraepelin said or kraepelin noticed rather that in his um, asylum when he would meet people he would actually see like multiple different subtypes of psychosis for instance there were the people with psychosis who presented with a chronic progressive debilitating psychosis and it, not a loss of contact with reality these people he classified as having dementia praecox so this is more of what we would consider to be like similar to schizophrenia whereas there was another type uh, who he termed manic depressive who would have kind of a waxing and waning of symptoms they may have periods of time where they were uh, more disinhibited more um, having psychotic processes auditory hallucinations Uh, disconnect with reality, but then they would recover, and these were people that could be discharged. And um, to crapland it was important to draw a distinction between these two people because then you could make decisions about prognosis. Like, is this someone who could, you know, potentially be released from an asylum for a period of time? Or was this someone who needed to be institutionalized for the, re- the rest of their life? And these kind of became kind of two warring camps in psychiatry around the turn of the century and into the thirties and forties. But really there wasn't a lot of agreement among different psychiatrists. This became a problem, because when the U.S. epidemiologists and statisticians were trying to determine, like, what was the actual rate of mental illness in the population, uh, they would go into asylum records, and they would see people diagnosed as, in, like, some asylums, just insanity, period. Everyone is included under that rubric, or in certain uh, asylums where the person had a Freudian bent, there would be people with like psychotic reaction, neurotic reaction, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then others with a Kraepelinian uh, bent would be like classifying them as manic depressive or dementia praecox, or maybe it was a mix of them all. And sometimes it was just an idiosyncratic thing that would develop at one particular institution that was not generalized to anywhere else in medicine. So they, they, they came upon this issue of like, how do we actually classify... Like different types of mental illness. What is the actual rate of mental illness in the U.S. and across the world? And they were lacking an explanation. So in the, in the 30s and 40s, in an effort to kind of standardize this, different bodies published different kind of rubrics for psychiatric diagnosis purely so they could better define what the actual rates were in the population and potentially make some... Prognostic implications based on that and determine where to allocate funding. One of the big ones was actually the Veterans Affairs Administration, the VA, um, in conjunction with active duty military. And this kind of really accelerated in the 30s and then really took off around World War II when they really needed to classify what these service members were being diagnosed with and what was happening to them and what should be done if they were diagnosed with any particular condition. So they they published very short brochures that were eventually called, like the standard was what it was called. And it was just a very, very simple classification system uh, that took into account a handful of mostly psychodynamic diagnoses and kind of gave a little guidance on what that would mean epidemiologically, this is how you classify them. And that worked really well for the military, but as it, as it happened, it didn't really translate very well to civilian life. Um, For instance, psychiatrists who were seeing patients who were active duty military, it's a very different population than someone you'd see in your outpatient clinic. So what happened was psychiatrists would want to classify these people, um, and the only things that they had at their disposal were things like psychopathic personality. Essentially in the military parlance encompassed a whole host of things, non-compliance, depression, anxiety, irritability, like it was a very very large proportion of people who'd be seen in outpatient clinics and it just it didn't make sense because it didn't really give you any information. So very quickly in the in the 40s and 50s psychiatrists realized that something needed to change. They needed a more robust diagnostic system that could actually be used to make decisions and to actually collate usable data on outpatients and and inpatients in the civilian world, not just the military world. So the APA took up the charge, and uh, this was spurred by... By governmental requests and um, grants provided by the newly funded National Institute of Mental Health. And the American Psychiatric Association was the one who eventually collated a list of these diagnoses almost entirely for statistical purposes in what would later become known as the DSM-1, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, first edition. This was published in 1952. And if you actually look at the DSM-1, it's, it's really interesting. There's, it's almost a completely different document than what we're familiar with today. It's, it really is just a pamphlet. It's spiral-bound, it's only a handful of pages, and actually, probably only a third of it is related to diagnosis. The other two-thirds are truly just for statistical purposes. It includes examples of the forms you would fill out for how you would check like whether this person fit into a different category, how you tabulate the results, and what specifically you would need to report to the statistical office of the NIMH. Um, And that was most of the book. The parts that actually said anything about diagnosis were kind of just very brief, like single paragraph vignettes about what you might expect in this type of patient. And they divided the... A whole host of psychiatric disorders into either acute or chronic brain disorders which what we would recognize now is like a neurologic illness something like um, intellectual disability or fetal alcohol syndrome or uh, stroke things like that those were the chronic brain disorder acute or chronic brain disorders they also included personality disorders which would be very familiar with today although they had a, a whole host of other ones that have since fallen out of favor and don't really exist anymore and then lastly, the rest of the psychiatric diagnosis were divided up into either psychotic reactions or neurotic reactions. And the kind of reaction thing, that's, that's very psychodynamic. It's the idea that this is, this is classifying what happened, but still with a very fundamental, like theoretical underpinning. The DSM-1 made kind of an assumption about the theory of mental illness that it was a psychodynamic cause. There was, this was a reaction to some unconscious conflict.
0: Well, that makes sense, given the time period that it was published in that most psychiatrists are psychodynamic. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And, and this, this kind of fit with the, the prevailing view. that um, All things could be explained in the psychodynamic way. But unfortunately, like if you look at the, the definition for schizophrenia or for psychotic reaction schizophrenic type, it doesn't really give you a lot of information. It, it paints a picture that you could conceptualize as being similar to what we currently think of as schizophrenia, but it could encompass a lot of other things. It really was only a couple sentences long. It didn't give a lot of information. Nothing was necessary to rule in or rule out the diagnosis. It was just like, yeah, if this, this sounds about right, that's, it's probably a psychotic reaction schizophrenic type. If it sounds like something else, eh, it's probably something else then. Um, But they really didn't, there was still big gaps between each of the diagnosis, diagnoses, and it didn't really have a lot of explanatory power.
0: Well, our training would be way easier. It definitely term. would. It
1: definitely would. This, the DSM1 was really is not very long. It was like 100, 200 pages long, whereas the current one is like almost probably over 1,000. This was kind of just the state of psychiatric care in the, in the '50s, and then DSM2 was published in 1968, essentially very similar, but made some efforts to kind of harmonize the DSM terminology with the current ICD, I believe it was eight or nine which was coming out of the time. Very, very few changes. There was a similar kind of just vignette describing the psychiatric disease.
0: So did it incorporate um, Emil Kraepelin's idea, the manic depressive versus dementia praecox?
1: No, and I'm glad you brought that up, because that was, that was the big change that was in store for psychiatry, was the idea that rather than diagnosing things in a psychodynamic way, Um, where diagnosis really didn't matter um, and was very attached to the the theory beneath the diagnosis that it could transition to a more medical model, something that Kraepelin had envisioned like 50, 60 years before. Before I get to that, and that will be the story with the DSM-3, that was the big shift that happened. But before I get to that, I think it's important, I mentioned at the beginning that there was kind of two fundamental tensions. One was the idea that what is, what is the specific diagnosis? And the other was, what does mental illness mean? What What is it actually like? And to that, I have to take a step back for a little bit, so if you'll forgive the digression. Recall that when we were talking about Hippocrates and Galen, the humoral theory of mental illness and of medicine, everything was under the same roof. Every mental and physical illnesses were all grouped together under the idea that they were caused by disturbances in the four humors. There really wasn't a division between mind and body. That division came about in the 17th century, um, largely because of the work of a enlightenment philosopher, uh, Rene Descartes, and the place where this originated was in an essay um, his, of his meditations. And in this essay, he was trying to discover like, okay, what, how can I use reason to determine what is in fact reality? So the, the essay takes place with him just kind of sitting in his study, trying to logic out what does he know that is true. So he's sitting there in his room, and this is where you get the idea that I think, therefore I am. He doesn't know that his senses are accurate. He doesn't know that what he sees is real. He doesn't know that if he turns his head, the world doesn't disappear behind him, that other people exist. But he knows one thing for sure, that he thinks and therefore he must be. And he reasoned therefore that because he can know, he can logic through the idea that because he thinks, therefore he is, but he cannot logic through the idea that he has a physical being, that mind and body must therefore be separate things, which he termed mind-body dualism. And this has kind of been a pervasive idea since then, that there is the brain, there is the physiologic processes, the neurons that are firing the neurotransmitters and then there's something separate, something almost spiritual or mystical that is the mind. Um, and this, this is, like, something that's very prevalent in popular culture today, too, and something that we, like, we talk about with our attendings kind of unintentionally. Like, there's the idea that, you know, now psychiatry is becoming more brain, less mind, or more mind, less brain. Um, or the idea that you address the brain with medications mm-hmm. and you address the mind with psychotherapy. I don't know. Have you have you heard that before in, like, your experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, like in our classes. I think was it our psychodynamic class mm-hmm. that we talked about the brain um, mind dualism. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's 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 highlighted in some aspects as a as a very useful thing, um, and certainly there's there's complexity that we don't yet understand, um, and dualism still a. a prominent idea in some circles, and kind of the modern spin on it is that while a common example um, I think was given by uh, philosopher D- David Chalmers, that while we could potentially understand all the facets that going go into being a bat, for example, we can understand how sonar works, we can understand what visual acuity they have and what colors they can perceive, we can understand the movements of their arms and how their brain controls it, but despite that, and despite potentially even perfect knowledge of all the things that go into being a bat, we don't know what that fundamental subjective experience of being a bat could be. We don't understand what he called the qualia of being a bat. And that's the idea that, okay, the, the qualia, the subjective experience is the mind, and the brain is everything else. So that that's, that's one idea, that brain and mind are separate. It's not very intellectually satisfying, at least to me. It it, se- it seems to suggest that the brain must therefore exist separate, or the mind must exist separate than the brain. Whereas I think our kind of modern scientific understanding is that while you know consciousness is a very complex process, and we don't really have a full idea of where consciousness develops and what things influence it, um, it is fundamentally like neurons, neurotransmitters, and connections.
0: But if your brain dead, does the consciousness still exist? And then that becomes a philosophical or spiritual question. You know, where if your body ceases to exist, where where does the mind go, or does that cease to exist?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a question I certainly can't answer. But um, I don't know. It's it seems like the realm of psychiatry kind of ends where the brain ends, if that makes sense, or at least that's my kind of interpretation.
0: Well, what do you mean?
1: I mean, like, I, at least in kind of my philosophical world view, I don't think there is anything, like, outside the mind, and maybe that's a discussion for another day, but I think the only thing we have evidence of, and the only thing we have evidence that we're actually influencing is the brain, rather than any other kind of, I don't know, more mystical idea of what the mind is
0: that there is any other part of the body for example like the heart they used to think that the heart was some you know part of your spirit but yeah you know our consciousness is our mind
1: right yes and and i think then at least again in my world view it follows that our consciousness is our mind our mind is our brain and there's nothing extra this is, a debate. I, this, this is a debate that probably philosophers need to have rather than psychiatrists. But it is interesting. And it is kind of a direct influence on how we diagnose patients. So um, this, this idea of mind-body dualism started in the Enlightenment, um, the 17th century with Descartes. And it's been pretty prominent throughout Western society since then. This was the idea when um, Freud, you know, Freud initially trained as a neurologist, and uh, trained under um, Charcot, which is someone you'll recognize as having tons of neurologic diseases named after him. Freud departed from the neurology that he had been trained in because he, he thought that there was something that neurology couldn't explain, the psychodynamics, the underlying conflict that was influencing people's behavior what he considered the mind, separate, perhaps separate from the brain. And actually, I, I wonder actually if, if Freud did consider them separate. But certainly throughout the, the early 20th century up until like DSM one and two, there was the idea that, you know, physical medicine had its diagnosis. It had its like impact on physical structures in the body and um, we could study their effects. Whereas psychodynamic, Psychotherapy was kind of like, it was a little more ethereal. It was influencing the mind directly without necessarily having anything to do with the brain. And the direct consequence of this was that almost either unintentionally or intentionally, um, psychiatrists kind of started separating themselves from the rest of medicine. And whether this was like societal perception or whether this was like, the, own, the action of psychiatrists is kind of a thing you can debate, but the effect was that in medicine we had diseases. We had specific diseases that we would treat. We knew the prognosis. We knew treatments that worked because we had studied them specifically in those specific diseases. This is the cardiogenic edema, the cirrhosis, the lymphedema versus psychiatry was we had this kind of general conception of the consciousness being influenced by a lot of factors. We didn't have any really specific studies about what worked for specific things because you know, there was just so individual. This was dropsy. This was ultimately not a helpful concept. And as a result, like the perception in in, uh, kind of the rest of society was that psychiatry wasn't a science. And in fact, there's perhaps some truth to that, like in the early part of the 20th century, that psychiatry was really kind of a philosophy in practice than any kind of scientific practice. Uh, It was people would debate the merits of various interpretations, but it really wasn't based on evidence. It was based on this kind of pillar of sand. Um, whereas the rest of medicine had, they could point to specific studies, they could point to anatomical correlates, and to be fair to psychiatrists at the time, it's, it's a lot easier to see that, like after a heart attack, there's like a blocked vessel. You can dissect it and you can see that objectively. No one would argue with that. Whereas in something like depression or bipolar disease or schizophrenia, most of the things that we treat and that we base our diagnosis upon are entirely subjective. It's kind of tough to tell what is there. and you, Different psychiatrists could argue different things. And so the practical result of this is that while there had been these efforts to kind of standardize the statistics of how um, we looked at psychiatric diagnosis and asylums, practically um, there wasn't a lot of consistency between one psychiatrist and another. In fact, there was a famous study done around this time uh, that showed that when when being shown the same like video interview of a patient psychiatrists in in America were much 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 more, more likely to diagnose schizophrenia whereas based on the exact same information the same video psychiatrists in the UK would diagnose manic depression so this was kind of a crisis for the reliability of the field i mean if they if a psychiatrist couldn't even agree on a diagnosis for something that was extremely straightforward, how could they possibly agree on a treatment? Um, to the rest of medicine and in general to the rest of society, this was, again, further evidence that psychiatrists were kind of making it up as they go along. So why give them funding? Why like trust their advice? Why like believe them as part of the like medical fraternity?
0: even nowadays if you show 10 psychiatrists a case they could come up with different answers they wouldn't all agree um even if you look we have dsm criteria for um schizoaffective versus bipolar versus schizophrenia but sometimes it's so difficult to tell even though we do have the dsm criteria
1: that is true and there's there's still kind of a, a difficulty with reliability even now um But this was to a much more extreme degree to the point where, you know, well, and maybe we'll talk about this a little later. Maybe maybe some of that, like, distinction between schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, maybe that doesn't matter as much, whereas the difference between schizophrenia and major depression matters a lot, or schizophrenia and anxiety matters a lot. So while while we haven't totally addressed this concern, I, I would say that you know, back in the day when when the study was being done, there was, you know, show two psychiatrists, 100 videos, they only agree on maybe like 20. Now a similar thing could occur today and maybe the psychiatrists would agree on, I don't know, 80, 90. So there's still some subjectivity, which is again, kind of a problem in the field. And maybe some of that's inherent to the nature of what we do. Like all the data we collect, most of the data we collect is subjective, just inherently. Um, so there's, there's variability there that's just kind of built in. But what, what people in the 50s and 60s saw, um, again, was like, they can't even agree on a diagnosis. Is this diagnosis even real? So um, kind of going off that idea, there was a pretty vehement like, anti-psychiatry movement um, in the United States, at least. Some of this was spurred on by, like, religious ideas. Scientology was a big part of this. But there were also, like, uh, other critics. Notably, kind of the most prominent was Thomas Zazz. Um He was actually a psychoanalyst, but he, in 1961, published a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, which, if you can imagine that being s- said today, that's a pretty strong claim. And essentially what he argued was that... Um, Psychiatrists are trying to d- diagnose disorders of the mind, which he asserted can't exist. Disorders of the brain are real, but disorders of the mind are impossible. And he argued that behavior could not be a disease, that uh, disease must have some kind of, like, anatomical or physiological component. Otherwise, otherwise it's not medicine. Um, and therefore, we should do away with the whole system, essentially.
0: I... I don't know, to play devil's advocate, I can kind of understand what he's saying, that, you know, you have to have something biological to diagnose it. Otherwise, what are you going off of? Are you just going off of what people deem to be deviant?
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, to, to his credit, he, like, one of his big, like, bugaboos with psychiatry is that he felt like people were being involuntarily hospitalized too often, that's, that's one of the few things I can say to his credit. Um, but ultimately he, he, he felt that mental illnesses weren't real at all. Um, that it was just, well, you know, I, to, to kind of reflect your idea that like, okay, are we just diagnosing, are we just identifying deviant behavior? Um, I think that misses maybe a lot of, the subjective distress that it causes people, and maybe that's the the critical component, because that would come in later. For example, for a very long time, like homosexuality was a mm-hmm. mental disorder, which is not anymore. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if you take the Zaz view of something like schizophrenia or something like uh, bipolar illness, you you could say that okay, we're we're basing this entirely on subjective. Like experience, this is this is all mind, and therefore it doesn't matter what we do with it. Whereas I think the the more modern view of that would be okay. Well, you you have this this disorder schizophrenia, which we'll talk about how we get to that point where we're diagnosing a specific thing, but we know based on that that this person will have a shorter life expectancy because they don't receive like adequate preventative medical care. We know that if you don't treat this person's psychosis, it'll be harder to treat in the future and it'll cause like more disruption. We'll know that if for instance this person were to be offered a long-acting injectable, we would actually improve their mortality. They would a significant enough portion would be alive at 10 years that it would be a significant difference. And we could improve their functioning and reduce their subjective distress because we identified that they have this syndrome that we call schizophrenia.
0: So, yeah, the four Ds of um, abnormal. Yeah. So we have deviance, distress, dysfunction, and danger.
1: Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's built into our modern or our current diagnostic scheme that you have to have distress or dysfunction in order to like, classify it as a disorder at all. Otherwise, it's just kind of odd. Or, I don't know, some kind of variation on normal.
0: I think there's a lot of biologic stuff that we don't understand. Um, if you look at schizophrenic brains, we know that they're different from mm-hmm. normal brains. Yeah. But at the same time, you can't diagnose depression based on an MRI finding. True. You could look at the two MRIs and they could be you know, you, maybe you can't see something. And, you know, if you look at neuroimaging studies, they'll have some conflicting data. It's We still don't know. We still don't know what exactly are all the biomarkers of mm-hmm. depression. We have some ideas, but not really, yeah. where we can look at something and say, here is the biological basis of mental illness. Yeah.
1: And that's kind of been like the the holy grail of psychiatry, isn't it, to identify the firm, biologic, like, underpinnings of mental illness. And so, kind of, to to return to the example of um, Thomas Dawes, so he, he kind of argued that his, like, I think his actual quote was that if it can't be determined on autopsy, it's not a real condition, which is a pretty bold claim, and it kind of calls into question, like, what he would think of a lot of other things in normal physical medicine, things that are based on, you know, Clinical diagnosis based on subjective report, like for instance, headaches. Are headaches real? What evidence do we have that headaches are real? Nothing. Subjective report. Some like migraines can have like spots on MRIs, but like in every case, do we know that a headache is real? No. It's subjective report. Um, what evidence do we have? Well, before we had like serologic tests. Lupus was the same way. Lupus was the in tense list of possible associated things that you needed a certain number of it was just a what's been criticized in psychiatry as just like a list that you go through and check off which ones you have and once you collect enough you have the diagnosis but that's that's kind of an essential feature of a number of things for instance so mentioned lupus epilepsy was another one before we had eeg correlates that was a psychiatric disease until it suddenly became neurologic when we found an anatomical and physiologic substrate um there's lots of things in medicine that kind of adhere to that. So would he consider them not real? I, I don't know. He must. If, it, if he was logically consistent, he would. And then, uh, again, I said there was not a lot I could say to his credit, because he didn't, actually. I, have, I know for a fact that he did not take that logical step. Um, and he also, like, when like brain studies show difference in like ADHD versus normal kid brains or um schizophrenia versus non schizophrenia or like things that we have pretty objective evidence that there are some like anatomical or biologic differences. He would say like okay, well, that's neurology now. And then psychiatry suddenly <laughs> is this mind like thing that is not real.
0: I still have hear neurologists say that uh, psychiatry is just neurology, we don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah. And that's, that's again, that's the expression of the kind of mind-body dualism. Um, so anyway, so there's been a number of, like, critiques of Thomas Szasz, but he was um, pretty influential in the 60s and 70s of the time, and he um, kind of caused a crisis in the field of psychiatry. Him among, like, the anti-psychiatry movement and uh, other, like, you know, our non-psychiatry medical colleagues. Psychiatry was very much like a backwater. It was not super evidence-based. It was not like super well-researched. We didn't have a lot that we can do. In fact, my my dad, who's a, a physician, used to joke that um, uh, neurosurgeons know nothing but do everything. Neurologists know everything but do nothing. Um, like, up until up until you know 20 years ago there was nothing we could do for a stroke once it happened it was like oh well you got a stroke and it's probably in this area we can identify that but that's about it um you know epilepsy there was for a long time we couldn't do anything about epilepsy we knew what it was but we couldn't do anything about it we couldn't do anything about headaches we couldn't um do much but now that's that's all changed and and a similar thing kind of happened in psychiatry in with the advent of medications but where this leads us to. So, this idea that, okay, we've got different conceptions of what manic- mental illness is. We've got different uh, theories on diagnosis, the Kraepelinian versus the Freudian. Um, this leads us to 1980. There was significant concern about, like, we weren't really uncovering the basis for mental illness because we weren't really sure what we were talking about. Um, DSM-2 had some like ability to kind of help us categorize different things, but it had a lot of subjectivity. There was a lot of interrelated like reliability problems. What we needed was something to more firmly hammer down what each individual mental illness was. This, was, this is the medical model. This is how you diagnose migraines or headaches. This is how you diagnose heart failure. You collate a list of symptoms and signs and markers that go together and fit into like any particular syndrome. And because you know that these things occur together, when you see those things, you can make inferences about treatment, about prognosis. We just couldn't do that in, me- in mental health. So... In 1980, uh, the next revision of the DSM was published, DSM III, and this one was radically different than what had come before. This included the kind of checklist approach that we're familiar with today. It expanded the DSM from a short pamphlet to a massive textbook um, and categorized mental illness specifically and uh, in a way that you could develop specific scales that you knew you were diagnosed, okay, I'm treating depression because this, this, and this are true. You can argue that to another person and they would theoretically agree. And with that, you could base studies specifically on, okay, if we look at the MRIs of a thousand people that have schizophrenia diagnosed by DSM-3 criteria, which include X, Y, and Z, we can try and parse apart additional factors. Whereas you know, just a couple of years prior, you'd be like, okay, let's look at all the imaging of people with psychotic reaction schizophrenic type, which can mean anything, almost anything. So the specificity helped improve the reliability of diagnosis and with that improved our the treatments that we could offer. Because we knew that, okay, if you have this, if you have, say, major depression, and mean, meaning you meet five of the 9 SIGI SIGGY-CAPS criteria, we know that on average you have this percentage chance of responding to medication X, and therefore we can try it.
0: So in 1980, when DSM-3 came out, what medications did they have?
1: So at that time, um, for psychosis, they would have had the first-generation antipsychotics. They would have had tricyclic antidepressants and mao inhibitors they they really didn't have a lot but they had there was enough there was some specificity. they had ect they had some specificity that they they, they could offer not nearly to the degree that we have today but at least they could start to make those distinctions but this was a big paradigm shift and it was something that um i think psychodynamic psychotherapists would be were very opposed to this was you're making this a checklist when this is supposed to be a relationship or something like that but the effect it did have was it kind of enshrined psychiatry in the medical model of disease this dsm-3 attempted to eliminate the difference between mind and brain and set the foundation for future research to try and clarify what exactly the origin of mental illness was what was the actual physiologic reason for mental illness so, this was a big change. This was kind of the first paradigm shift in the diagnosis of mental illness. And this continues. So, DSM 4 was published in 1994. There wasn't a ton of difference between 3 and 4. There was more information, there was more data that was included, there was more info about prognosis. Uh, and then, DSM 5, finally, the idea was that it would go a step further that it would now, rather than the checklist approach, would introduce these dimensional models of mental illness that, you know, you have a certain degree of depression, you have a certain degree of like psychosis, and we could more accurately tailor people to diagnosis. That didn't really come to pass, but it it was an idea and something that was kind of tucked away in the like conditions needing further study appendix. But that's kind of where we're at today. So we went from the holistic idea of the humors to the individual idea of psychosis and neurosis with kind of the background of the Kraepelinian worldview world to now a more specific kind of checklist of diagnosis influenced heavily by the Kraepelinian worldview, which now gives us information about like specificity to each individual patient with a diagnosis and how that informs treatment and prognosis. And that kind of, there's a, there's a lot to be said about the the finer points of like differences between DSM three and four and five and the research that's come about over the years, but um, it kind of begs the question: What's next? Like, is, is DSM is the DSM five system the the system that will carry us through into the future? And there's pretty considerable debate about that. So um, DSM five was just revised last year. There was a text revision put out. Not a whole lot of difference. One can a couple conditions added. Some like minor variations but fundamentally maintain the same, like, philosophy, that you are diagnosing a syndrome, these are the components of the syndrome that you should look for, and if they have enough, then you can fit them into this category, and boom, you can go on the treatments that you know work for that syndrome. Some things that have been problematic with that paradigm are, like, I'm sure you've noticed that, for instance, SSRIs, medicine we commonly prescribed for anxiety, but also depression, but also OCD, but also like right. mood disorder components of schizophrenia, they all it works for all of those conditions. Like there's not a whole lot of specificity between the conditions based on the medicines we know would work for at least some of them. Similarly, we use antipsychotics in not only schizophrenia, and but we also use them in bipolar, but also in sometimes major depression also sometimes in OCD, uh, also sometimes in PTSD. Um, There's like not a whole lot of specificity that our medications have. Also, when now that we've had the uh, benefit of hindsight, having these diagnostic criteria, when we look at like genetic studies, or when we look at environmental influences, they're pretty similar across conditions. Like, Childhood neglect influences your risk for almost all mental illnesses, not just one specifically. Um, A family history of a certain mental illness raises your risk for multiple others. Now, that is there is some specificity there. For instance, schizophrenia uh, or bipolar, but still, it's not as clean cut as we would like. If if these were very, if these were true diagnoses,
0: so Uh, do these diagnoses exist, or is it kind of like going back now to the? Yeah. out of the Freudian viewpoint whoa, whoa. where does it really matter what the specific diagnosis is and yeah. to look at more of the individual.
1: Yeah, and that and that's kind of the big question that's that's being addressed now. Now I, I would argue it it matters. Like well, if, yeah. if if someone has like if someone has schizophrenia, we know by that very fact that they are like we would have this percentage chance of them responding to this class of drugs we should try this first, then this. We know that clozapine has better evidence. Like, there's a lot of things. We know that this is a chronic disease, that they need medication. Psychotherapy is not an effective treatment for this. Like, there's information that we can glean from that.
0: Or if you have bipolar versus, unipolar
1: right, know, exactly. bipolar
0: depression, then right. um, you need the mood stabilizers.
1: Precisely. Yeah. So, so diagnosis matters to a degree. And we still need it for insurance, for... Um, like being able to provide needed services for people. But you're right, there's something that's lacking there. So there's been a couple like alternative models that have been proposed actually for a significant amount of time, one, the most famous and most common is the RDoC model, have you heard that before? right yeah so it's this is the this is the way that the National Institutes of mental health um, that's the way they fund grants for like research into mental illness um, they don't care about the diagnosis that you're studying. they only want to know if you're looking at something like negative valence systems or positive valence systems or um, like within those if you're looking at the gene level, the behavioral level the Environmental level, whatever. So they're they're really they've stripped away all diagnostic categories and are just looking at the systems. So this is essentially trying to build a diagnostic system from the brain up.
0: I feel like it doesn't quite work yet because we don't have enough knowledge about the brain. Yeah. And how do you really apply all that? So okay, just to expand on this, the positive valence system could be how you is how you respond to positive stimuli, like mm. the reward system, for example, the negative valence of the, uh, system, how you respond to threats. You know, there's also like the cognitive system, the arousal system, social processes. Mm. So um, if you look at something like suicide, for example, or like suicidal ideation, how do you fit that into one system? Mm. If you have depression, how do you fit that into one system? Because it's gonna be, all these contributions from different systems, whether it's you respond less to reward systems, or you are more sensitive to threats, hmm. or you have different cognitive processes that allow you to pay attention to specific stimuli oh. more. So how do you fit that into treatment, like clinical treatment? Like you can kind of see how that fits into neuroimaging studies, but how do hmm. you fit that into treatments?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. And that's kind of that's been a critique of the of the RDOC model is that it provides all this great like basic science data, but it doesn't really inform how we manage patients. And similarly, there's been there's been other proposals, um, kind of more on the on the clinical aspect. So I mentioned RDOC is kind of like you're, we're trying to build build a diagnostic system from the brain up. There's other systems that try to build it from essentially behavioral categories up. So there's a system proposed called the high top model, which is like the hierarchical taxonomy of mental illnesses. And in it, they divide mental illness into essentially a, a smooth continuum with several kind of like sub-fractions. So there's like the psychosis continuum. Everyone is somewhere on the psychosis continuum. There's the depression-anxiety continuum. And someone everyone has like some degree of that. And the kind of appealing thing about that is that it includes normal people, which I think everyone recognizes that there's not like a... It's not always a yes-no. You you don't either have depression or have no depression at all. It's it's a continuum, and some of it's part of normal experience. But our diseases are really... They're like the, the most severe 5% or whatever of that continuum. And rather than saying that they're on a continuum, we... Have chosen to be like, okay, the most severe 5% probably meet these criteria. This is how we would describe them. If they meet like however many, five of nine of this criteria, they must therefore be in the most severe 5%. So the the other system, and there's another system that um, is like a different method of organizing personality disorders, is criticism of the DSM for saying like, okay, you're only listing personality pathology when everyone has a personality. Like there's it therefore must be a dimensional system everyone must have some degree of these traits but that's really not reflected in our current way of thinking about mental illness um so that's potentially the future i think the dsm as it stands now as you pointed out like it has some explanatory power but it's and it's useful clinically but i don't know if it's like necessarily truth
0: right but I don't know. I feel like if we move to that sort of continuum model, it just isn't as practical. Yeah. You know, how do we, you know, you're here on this depression scale, you're here on this psychotic scale. Like, what, what does all that mean? And it's not, it, it doesn't give you easy categories.
1: Yeah, and it, it doesn't give you easy access to, like, the evidence. Like, for instance, we, we would need to, if we switch to that, like, if we switch to that category today... <laughs> I don't. I have no idea how I would uh, yeah. like treat like I would identify. Like, okay, you're more likely to respond to this medicine than this medicine, so we should do this. Maybe in like if we did that today, and we started studying everything again. Maybe in like twenty thirty years, we'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, you're this percentage on the psychotic symptoms, so clearly you'd benefit from this medicine. But we're just we're not there yet, and there'd be a long way to go to get there.
0: I'm looking towards the future. I imagine a big change could happen if we were advance enough in neuroscience to Mm -hmm. actually understand like physiologically if if this actually even exists like what if we could identify biomarkers if we got to that advanced point in technology which i don't know if we will if that's even possible and then then maybe it'd be practical to say here's this diagnosis and that could lead to whole different so diagnoses who knows
1: Yeah, that's that's really like intriguing to think about. I I hope that's possible, but you're right. I don't
0: I don't know. Yeah, it sounds like sci-fi.
1: Yeah, yeah, really. And the, there's kind of a a thing. One of our mentors, Dr. Wengel, who we had on the podcast, kind of classified people either into lumpers and splitters. The DSM and everything that, that represents are splitters. They're like really trying to get to the very fine divisions between people, whereas lumpers might say that well. You know, there's probably only psychosis, anxiety, depression, and maybe some other things. And you just figure out which one of those you're treating, and then boom, there you go. You've got your plan. Um, and maybe there's some truth to that too. That's kind of the dimensional approach. But really, where this goes in the future is kind of anyone's guess. I think the the safe bet is that we'll continue in the DSM model for at least a while. But I think we're due for a paradigm shift. And with all paradigm shifts, it's hard to predict what that's going to be in advance. Well, thank you for having this discussion with me. This was uh, kind of a weird episode. I feel like I came away with a lot more questions than actually answers.
0: Yeah, but it's fascinating to discuss.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for for being here and having this conversation. And I just want to thank our listeners again for tuning in. This has been the History of Madness podcast. You can find us on your podcast platform of choice. And while you're there, please give us a like and a rating. Um, It really helps us grow the show.
0: Thanks. Thank you.